like to just take out your outline. I'm, we're in part three of strengthening your family. Appropriate today, because this is where Peter and Etienne and, and Annalise, uh, they're in this mode. Now, you're either in this mode, you've gone out of the mode, or you're about to go into the mode. <laughs> so no matter what, these practical steps from God's Word will bless you. So today we're in a series called how, uh, how to Restore Harmony in Your Home. And generally speaking, there are six main areas of conflict in a marriage. So Harry, before you get married, take notes on this so you're all prepared, like going for an exam. Here they are. Just quickly, six ones. I haven't written them down yet on there, but I'm just going to touch them. Money. Money's just in, uh, an area of conflict in marriage, universally. Sex. That's an area of conflict, let me tell you. It is. That's a fact. In this church, we're very real. Communication or lack of. Communication can really have a whole plethora of downstream effects. In-laws. In-laws can be a real issue. You've got to negotiate that one. And there's another one. Goals. Let me tell you why. Look up here. If you have a vision for your life and marriage and relationships that goes this way. That's your vision. Person A. Person B, the second part of this, has a second vision and it goes this way. You have two visions. That's called division. Because the Greek word die is two. Division. You get division. So one of the things you've got to get is you've got to get common goals for your marriage. For your marriage. Do you have any? Otherwise, you're all over the map and nobody knows where you're going. You can't go the same direction. It's like jumping in the car. You think you're going there. They think they're going there. And even if you think you're going there, you better negotiate how you're going to get there. So very many different ways to get there. All right. Let's roll. Now, because there, is, there are common causes and there's of conflict in marriage, and there is conflict, and what happens is then hurt happens. People get hurt in marriage, and it damages. When there's conflict, it damages relationships, and it can destroy families. You can even see that between brother and sister. So if you're not married today, and you're not about to get married, you can apply this to relationships, okay? With your sister, with your cousin, with your brother, with your aunt, whoever it may be. Because conflict is common, this inflicts damage, and it can destroy his family. Take a look at this, Mark 3.25. If a family divides itself into groups which fight each other, that family will fall apart. It's the same principle for communities and countries. If you divide into groups, you're going to have a problem. That's where it's straight from the Scriptures. The living Bible of that vision says, a home filled with strife and division destroys itself. And on the other hand, God wants unity and harmony in a home. Uh, Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when people or brothers or sisters dwell together in unity, for there the Lord commands a blessing. It is an anathema for a Christian family to be at war with its, within itself, having a civil war. Now I think it ought to be mandatory before anybody gets married that they are taught conflict management. You know how young people get a license <laughs> to drive a car? Well, a car can only do so much damage, and it can be deadly, but so can a, a, a person who doesn't understand how to manage conflict. Because in any relationship, you are going to get conflict. 
The key is, okay, what do you do? In my day when we took a, a driving test, we had to learn how to skid properly. What do you do when you're in a skid and you let go? It, your tires have let go of the road. And we were trained how to do that. Today, most people haven't got a clue. Neither have they got a clue how to settle conflict and how to manage conflict. I think people ought to be licensed to handle tricky situations. And so we go into these things completely blind. We think, oh, I love, I love this other person. They love me. Things are going to be fine. There's a word for that. It's called delusion. <laughs> you just get a little bit further down the road. As I said before, people talk a lot about premarital counseling. I mean, people never listen there. What you need to do is let them feel a bit of pain for a while, and then about four years, five years down the track, say, now are you interested to listen? Oh, yes. Because I felt the pain of some of those unmet expectations. So why is conflict inevitable for everybody? Why is that? Well, I'll tell you why, because we're all unique. You are not the same as your spouse. And those of you who are looking to get married don't think you are. Because often what happens, listen carefully, young people, at first, opposites attract. Oh, I like that. I like that. And then after a while, opposites attack. You may want to write that down because that is a fact. So we have every person's unique. And why is that? Because we have different desires. What my wife loves, it doesn't do a thing for me. And what I love, she couldn't give a toss about. So different interests, different tastes, different temper temperaments. And by the way, temperatures. <laughs> she likes it this way, I like it another way. And therefore, because we're so different, we're going to clash. We look at life differently. We sometimes value things differently. Young people, let me just say on this one, you've got to get some reasonable agreement on values before you ever decide to hook your caboose together. Values. Because if you're wrong on those, boy, there's a lot of downstream effects. Okay, today I want to look at three things. Number one is the reason for conflict. Number two, I want to look at the reaction to conflict. And number three, I want to look at the resolution to conflict. So number one, first, the cause or the reasons for conflict in relationships, be it with your spouse, be it with a friend, be it with your, whoever that may be, your mum. The Bible says this, James 4, what causes fights? You can look at the cause. Don't just treat the symptoms. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What is that? Don't they come from the, your desires, that battle within you? You want something and you don't get it, so you fight for it, your way or the highway. So the cause there of conflict, one of the reasons is competing desires. I want what I want and you want what you want. So we have competing needs and competing interests. How many of you, with this cool weather coming up, have just found that you may be needing an electric blanket, or you sometimes do, maybe during the winter, right? Now, I know this is hard to believe, but in the old days, they used to have one control on an electric blanket. <laughs> that was a really bad idea, isn't it? Because we're all made from different body temperatures. Some like it hot, and some like it cooler. But we also offer a differ in our temperaments and our personalities. And as we go along, marriage conflict becomes inevitable. And somebody said, marriage goes three stages. The first stage is the happy honeymoon. And that's marvelous. It's fantastic. And then the second part is the party's over. And the third part is, let's make a deal. You've got to make something work. So second, how do you react to conflict? 
How do you normally react to conflict? Well, there are five major ways we can summarize it. The first way you can react is my way. And in this first way of reacting, my way says this, I win. I win. I assert my will until you give in. That's my way. I'm totally right. You're totally wrong. My way is the only way. And some of you fight in this way in a relationship or in a marriage. And you keep at it until you wear the other person out and you win. That's my way. The second way is no way. No way. This is, I'm not talking about, don't talk to me about this. I'm not talking to you. No way. Not going to engage. So you withdraw from the conflict. And you ignore the problem. But friends, can I tell you this? Nothing is ever resolved because I keep walking away from the area of conflict. Actually, counterintuitive, what happens is kids run away. I've seen this with my grandkids. They run away from a problem. As you mature, you go towards the problem because you've got to sort it out. Because you know he's smart. If you don't go towards the problem, it's going to get worse. If I smell something in the fridge, it's kind of slightly off. I can just ignore that because I'm too busy, right? <laughs> if I leave that for long, it's going to fester and get much worse, right? And it's going to be growing something itself inside. It's like that in a relationship. If you smell something, you need to go towards it. Now, let me tell you, immature people run away from the problem. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to address it. Mature people go, okay, that's the slightest whiff of this. I need to move towards that because if I don't do anything, it's never going to get any better. So that's no way. Nothing is resolved because it's just stuffed and stuffed and stuffed and eventually you wake up one day and your relationship's smothered because there's no light. There's no truth in it. The third way is it's your way. This type of person says, I give in, and they roll over like a dog. They just roll over. I want your approval, so I pretend to be a doormat, and I always give in to your wishes. That is not a healthy relationship. It's always your way. Now, it may be what you call, and I've, I've, I've often challenged people, why do you do that? Because I don't want to fight. I just want peace. That's not real peace. And one day it'll blow up. It's a very frustrating way to live. The fourth way is kind of halfway. And this is where you compromise. I give in a little bit. I give a little and you give a little. You win some, you lose some. And that's better than the first three that we just talked about. But number five is the optimum. And that's our way. So that's where we work out our mutual goals together. And I not only care about solving the problem, careful here, I also care about the relationship. Often men just want to solve the problem. Boom. Just solve it, they'll do it. But you've got to care about the relationship as well. And that's really communicating to the other person, I not only care about this problem, but I care about you. So third area on your outline that we want to look at, and this is the resolution. We need to look at now the resolution of conflict. And I want to draw from the scriptures eight biblical ways that will help you resolve conflict in any relationship. 
but today I have a mind marriage. But if you're not married again, I want you to think about boyfriend, girlfriend. I want you to think about brother, sister, other relationships, even boss, employee. But let's start with the marriage one. The first step, I just want to say it straight out there, unashamedly, become a Christian. And then let me explain that and unpack it. Become a Christian. That's the first one. Become a believer. Commit your life to Christ. Because here's how it goes. It is easier to have peace with other people when first you have peace with God. You get peace with God, then you get the peace of God, then you can have peace with other people. That's a good order. And the Bible says if I've not committed my life, firstly, here's the facts. I am in conflict with God. It's super easy to do my own thing. What I want to do when I'm having... Not, when I'm ignoring God vertically, it eventually spills out horizontally. And many marriage problems will be more easily solved if you would simply give themselves, people would, to, to Jesus Christ. But so I'm just saying to you, don't put that off any longer. It's a foundation. You've got to lay the foundation correctly. Do it today. So you open your heart. Look at this, Ephesians 2.16. As parts of the same body, our anger with each other has disappeared. How is that? For both of us have been reconciled to God, and so the feud has ended at the cross. So Jesus, when Jesus is living with me, and Jesus is living within you, Jesus, I promise you, as I said last week, will not fight with Jesus. What fights with each other is our own fleshly desires. Now many of you could say, before you became a believer, if I had a conflict, I'd behave, well, that's your problem. That's how I think and behave. But now I'm a Christian. Now I have the Holy Spirit living in my life as my counselor. He gives me the desire and to, to do things right and to make things right when there's a strained relationship. Because it's super easy to just walk away and ignore it. He gives me the power to do the right things. Very easy. Have you noticed how easy it is to do the wrong thing? You need his power to encourage you and to counsel you to keep moving forward. And you'd be amazed at the power for reconciliation that comes into your life when you're living the way Jesus Christ wants you to live on a moment-by-moment basis. And that's the foundation. Number two, talk to God about the conflict. God, you know I've got a problem with this person, this boss, whoever it may be, my spouse. Before you go talking to the person, though, that you're upset with, talk to God about the conflict. Pray about it and admit to him, well, God, and he may even speak to you right then and resolve the conflict straight away. James 4.2, you quarrel and you fight. And you do not have because you do not ask God. Are you asking God to help you resolve that conflict or that issue? Circle, ask God. Many of the conflicts we have in life occur when we expect other people to meet needs that, here's the truth, only God can really meet. And God says, I actually want you to ask me. And he says, the solution to the conflict resolution is not to fight, but to ask me to help you there. And I've heard people say, well, if I get married, all of my needs will be met. 
all of my needs will be met. If I just meet the right person, then all my needs will be met. Can I tell you, is, that's not reality. No matter how wonderful that person is, you will never meet anybody in this world that will meet all of your needs, your deepest needs. They can't. And by the way, that's unfair to place that on them. That's unfair because only God can do that. Only God, only God can do that. So God actually designed you in such a way that only he can meet your deepest needs. Remember that. If you're single, don't go looking for anybody. It's one person to meet all of your needs. You're not going to find that person. Remember, my point in there is look to God. He never disappoints. Number three, when you're in a conflict, you need to analyze the problem. You need to analyze, diagnose the problem. And here's the first question, which is very hard to figure out, but gets easier when you're on your knees and you ask this question, how much of this is my fault? When you're on your knees. So before you start accusing and blaming and attacking, which is our normal MO, right? We're ready for a punch-up or a boxing match. Jesus asks, this is what he says, and we're going to look at it in a second, Am I part of this problem? How much of this do I actually own fairly and squarely? Holy Spirit, show me because I'm blind. Show me. Matthew 7 says this, direct bearing on this. Why? Why then do you look at the speck? So there is a speck in your brother's eye. There is one there. But, he says, and you pay no attention to the log in your own eye. Notice his advice. First, take the log out of your own eye first. Then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, let's apply this to a conflict. Before you start getting the sawdust out of your brother's or your husband's or your wife's eye, he's saying, get the telegraph pole <laughs> out of your own eye. Check it out. Say, how much of this is me? Don't blame the one, the other person. Am I part of the problem? Am I being too demanding? Am I being unrealistic? Here's another one on the other side. Am I being overly sensitive? Am I being impatient? These are good questions to honestly ask on your knees before you even go to the other person. The Bible says this, by the way, there's no such thing as a one-person problem family. There is a, uh, if there's a problem, it's not just that person's problem, because that person's problem affects the whole family, the whole group. It's actually our problem that we need to resolve for the sake of unity. The Bible says this in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have not sinned, we're just deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So sometimes to get a, a real clear fix on the truth, it's time and prayer with an open heart before God and say, God, I want to get this right. Would your Holy Spirit please reveal to me what I need to do and what's wrong? So if we're honest, we all make mistakes, that verse is saying there. And we all do dumb things. Oh boy, I've done way more than most of you in this room. So after you've done the first things, you've committed your life to Christ, you've talked to God about the problem, not your best buddy or somebody else close, talk to God about it, then you've analyzed it then four, and this is hard. You just sit down and schedule a conference. 
Make some time or bring the subject up. Bring it up. Sit down face to face. Face the issues. And deal with the thing, uh, or the question, what's the problem? Because, by the way, they may have a perception of this, of the problem, and you may have a perception of that. The first thing you've got to do is try and agree the problem. What actually is the problem? And by the way, conflict is seldom solved accidentally. I've never ever solved a math problem accidentally. <laughs> it doesn't happen like that. I haven't just got to a place accidentally. It's done intentionally and deliberately. So you sit down and you face issues. Now, I want you to notice something that some of you have blown out of the top off for many years. Jesus takes this very seriously. Far more than actually I gave it credit for for many years of my life. He says, if you go to church and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar and go at once and make peace with your brother. Then come back and offer your gift to God. So in other words, here's what he's saying. Jesus is saying right there, don't ignore conflict. And that's the word of God to some of you here today. Don't ignore it. He's also saying, effectively right there, you cannot worship effectively with unresolved conflict. You can't do it. Or don't go running off to another church thinking you're going to escape it, because guess what? It's the same God that's there. He's not fooled by that. God's there. I remember when we our kids were younger. Have you ever had a fight in the car, for those of you who are married? <laughs> a fight in the car, on the way to church. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Here's a great verse. First Peter 3, 7. Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Ooh, some people wonder where their prayers aren't answered. And the scriptures are very clear. Here's one significant and easy to overlook, but actually not when you confront the truth of the scriptures. The Bible says that disharmony in the home hinders your prayers. It doesn't matter what you say outside or what happens in church. What's happening in the home? So that's one of the things is Peter and Annalise are bringing up Etienne. They will have conflict. We have conflict. It's how you model to your children how you address that conflict, how you disagree agreeably. You, that's maturity, disagreeing agreeably. Think about the tone and think about the volume. Now, nobody's perfect at this, as James says, trying to control a thing. I'm not certainly standing here before you to say, oh, I've got this 100% right. I'm getting better. I think that's a fair point. But we all need to keep an eye on our tone and our volume. A couple of practical suggestions for a peace conference. Number one, choose the right time. That means don't drop a bomb on a person and surprise them completely. Because wrong timing, here's, here's a, a, a suggested classic time not to do this. Don't open fire when you've just gone to bed. Not a good move. You need to find a time and a place that's best for you both. Away from the kids, certainly away from devices. 
where you're not going to be interrupted. The place where you can sit down and really deal with the issue. Three, before you go to that meeting, pray. Each of you, get your own heart right and come to the meeting with not to, you know, I've got my defense and my uh, attack, you know, my prosecution ready to go, but with the spirit of, we want to make this work. We have a spirit of reconciliation, a spirit of forgiveness, but we are ready to work on the issue. You may not have all the answers. I don't expect you to come there with the answers. Not attacking each other, going there with the, oh, I'm just going to attack, attack, but attacking the problem. And the first thing before you can attack the problem, you need to know what the problem is. So don't fix the blame, fix the problem. So come with a positive attitude towards the conference and say, you know, it's, it's not for me to blame and unload at that meeting. It's not for me to accuse you and excuse me. And there's not the purpose of that. Once you've done this and you've scheduled a peace conference, this is a very important part which we need to agree. If you're going into a relationship, especially a marriage, get this part right. It's critical. If you're already in one, maybe you need to readjust these. And that's establish the ground rules prior to the fight. I once had a message on how to have a good fight. And it's important because you're going to have them. When we argue, when we have conflict, that's what I'm talking about. We can have major differences, but we need to be able to talk about them. And there are certain deadly weapons, which I mentioned last week, which are out of bounds. Remember in the old days, in the atomic era, there were weapons of mass destruction, WMD. In marriages and relationships, we can have words of mass destruction, have devastating effect. Because they provoke anger and they prevent resentment. You need to keep these things out of bounds, off limits, and agree up front, if you're about to go into a relationship, we will not use these in our family. So seven rules for fighting fear in a marriage. Number one, never compare. Never compare. Well, why can't you be like your sister? Or whatever it may be. Or like Bob, you know, somebody else's husband. It is unfair to compare. Why? Here's the logic. God made everybody unique. Everybody unique. Two, never condemn. Don't use phrases like, you always. Oh. It's discipline to whip out that word always, because it's not true. That's an emotional statement, and not factual. Number two, you never. That's not true either, because the moment somebody says to me, you never, guess what I'm thinking of? Racking my brains for the exceptions when that's not true, and therefore I dismiss the point. You can still make the point, but just take away the words always and never. They're extreme statements. And they're hardly ever true. Or you should. You are sort of like, you know, yeah. Try instead, use statements that start with I, which can be factual. You can even say something like this. I feel like, or I don't feel loved. You can say that because that's true to you. That's how you feel. Or I need this from you. Well, here's another really good one. It seems to me, it's not accusatory. It's much less threatening, much less condemning than when you make you, you, you statements. So try it that way. Rather than you ought to, you should, or you never, you always. If somebody says, I feel, 
husbands and wives, accept that as legitimate. Now, whether you understand it or not, this took me a long time to learn. I'm still making it an effort in this area. Whether I understand it or not, I can't say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. If they feel it, just accept it. It doesn't mean I agree. It does not mean that. Otherwise, I'd have an integrity crisis. Or it's legitimate, but you accept that's just the way they feel. That's it. Number three, never command. Don't try to end an argument by force. In other words, don't try to parent your spouse. Number four. And you can use this, by the way, with your children. Not quite this way, but never challenge. In other words, be careful of threats. What I mean by that are threats. Just try that and see what happens. Guess what happens? When you were a kid, somebody said, just try that and see what happens. Guess what you did? There's something rebellious in our nature. We just want to do something that we're told not to. Three most common threats I want to come back to at the moment are sex, money, and divorce. Rule those out as weapons and words and devices to force your own way. You don't this, you won't see me again. When we don't threaten, that's a mark of maturity. And by the way, just as a sidebar, if you have a teenager at the moment going over this way and thinking about that, be very, very, very careful about having threatened. You do that. These are called tiebreakers. You do that, this. Because guess what? If they do that, you're committed to do that or your leadership's gone. So be careful about tiebreakers. Use your brains there. Don't get into too many tiebreakers because you can't pull that card very often. Number five, never condescend. Don't treat the other person as inferior or belittle them or put them down. They're made in God's image. They're his daughter. They're his son. Number six, don't contradict. And this is how this shows up. Let them finish. Don't interrupt in the middle of a sentence. It's super frustrating. When somebody's trying to express their point, their emotion, and somebody cuts you off at the knees. Woo! That's not productive. That's not mature conversation. Let them say the whole piece. And sometimes you've got to count to five after there's silence to make sure they're finished. Because I'm ready at two milliseconds after Kimberly's finished to start my piece. But then I realize too many times that she's still got more to say, but I'm too quick off the draw. So don't cut each other off. That helps to reduce the conflict and get to the Here's a big one. Number seven, never confuse. Number seven, never confuse. Let me tell you what that means. Somewhere along the line, you're going along with this, and next minute, you bring up some completely unrelated issue. And you do this to sidetrack, because you know, and some of you are very good at doing this, and you do it because you know that you're losing. So you try and pick up another one where you think you've got a better position to defend. And so you keep switching the arguments like whack-a-mole, whack, you, and another one pops up, and whack that one, and another one pops up. That's not a good way to get to a resolution. You need to agree to stay on the topic. 
So stick with the situation and don't confuse the situation. So let me summarize all these seven things in just one sentence, very short sentence. Attack the issue, not each other. Attack the issue and not each other. The Bible says, why should we do that? Because the Bible says, Proverbs 11.29, the fool who provokes his family to anger and resentment will finally have nothing worthwhile left. Don't go provoking like that. The Bible says it's dumb to push buttons, and we know people, especially when we know it will make people angry, upset, and resentful. That's foolish. Number six. Number six is switch your focus. Now let me explain that. What we need to do here is we need to move the attention from myself to the other person. From selfishness to unselfishness. If we just do uh, Philippians 2, 4 and 5, we'd have very few conflicts in our home. We saw this verse two weeks ago. Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. So what was Christ's attitude? It was an attitude of not looking out for number one. There's no way Jesus did that, but he was looking out for us, for God's so love that he gave. Looking not only at your own interests, but looking for the interests of others. Circle that word look. There's an active looking. Because sometimes we're so wrapped up in our job, our business, our problems, our issues, our hobbies, our hurts. We don't even look to stand in their shoes. Somebody used to say, stand in the other shoes. I say, yeah, stand in their shoes and walk for a little while in them to feel what they are feeling and try and understand that look intently. So ask yourself at this peace conference, what are his or her needs right now? Ooh, that'll get you some clarity. What can I do to meet it? Because if they have a need and you don't meet it, you're not looking to the needs of others, right? But when we're angry, here's how it typically works. We are so preoccupied with ourselves, with our needs, with our hurts, with our expectations that haven't been met, which is all about me. We don't even think about the other person. But the Bible says here, look out for the needs of the other. Switch the focus. So when two immature people want their own way and are not thinking about the other person, here's what happens. I guarantee you, conflict is inevitable. So we just need to grow up spiritually. And guess who can help us do that? Jesus Christ. Number seven, ask for advice. If you've been going at this for a while, and you might need to have a few peace talks, by the way. Have a couple of cracks at this. Nothing is, very few things really get solved immediately. So let me set the expectation. You may have to have a couple of uh, goes around the mulberry bush on this one. Even if you're just making incremental progress in your home, it is a good thing. But if after a long time, you know, this nut ain't getting cracked, and home life is deteriorating, get some help. See, in every other area of your life, you're not ashamed to ask for some help. If all of a sudden you get a call from the IRD, they want to talk to you, you're going to go straight away and see a tax accountant. If you find there's something wrong with your body and you can't figure it out, you're going to go straight away, you go see a doctor. If somebody, you get a, a summons in the mail, 
you're going to go see your lawyer pretty quick. Or if you've got a financial problem, you go to see your CPA or CFA. If your relationship has a problem, why would you treat that any differently? Why would you do that? Go get some Christian counsel. Christian counsel. That's smart. That's really smart. And that's nothing at all to be ashamed of. I'll tell you why. It takes courage to get counseling and real love for your family and maturity to be willing to say, okay, we've got a problem. To admit that. That's not being solved. Let's get some help. Let's get some practical advice. So here's the deal. What if you're keen, but your spouse is not keen to get some counseling? What do you do? You go yourself. Because at least you can get better. You go yourself. Get some help. The Bible says ask for advice. Proverbs 15, 12. Conceited people do not like to be corrected. They never ask for advice. I'm all right, Jack. There's something wrong with that because that's pride. And God says, I'm opposed to the proud, but I give grace to the humble. You want grace in your life? You want God's help? You're humble. Be humble lest you stumble. Proverbs 15.32, good news. If you refuse to learn, you're hurting yourself. And can I say in that context, you're also hurting your family. What's it worth to have a harmonious home that you'll look forward to coming home to? Eighth and finally, don't give up. This is a hard one. What I'm saying to you in very clear monosyllabic terms is don't walk out in the middle of a fight. Finish your fights. You want to write that down. Finish your fights. Stick with it. Resolve to see it through. Now, I know that conflict resolution is never easy, but there are three stages in a conflict. The first one is recognition. You're going to recognize there's a problem. We have a problem. Many even have a hard time getting to that stage and admitting that. But again, God gives grace to the humble. What's the problem? Oh, we don't have a problem. That's a problem. <laughs> the first indication that you have a problem is when you're having a dispute and somebody just walks out. That's not good. Not healthy. Number two. Second stage is the reaction. When you dig into it a bit, and you come to the acknowledgement, this is worse than what I thought. <laughs> this is the painful stage. You recognize, and then you start to have the reaction. This is when the emotions come out. Voices, unfortunately, can get raised. The scriptures would encourage you to keep the volume and the tone down. Sometimes there are tears at the stage. And maybe some hurtful things come out. You go, oh, that hurt. And then there's often bitterness and there's some resentment and anger and frustration and fears come out. And irritation. This is, the, this is normal for this phase. You need to know what's normal for this phase. And then stage three is the resolution. Where you actually have gone through all the heat. And the heat comes, by the way, before the light. Because <laughs> the light then informs stage three, which is the resolution. What are we going to do about this? There's a problem. What are we going to do? The problem I see over and over again is many families never get past stage two. Well, they recognize there's a problem because it's 
been there a long time, years. And they start to talk about it. Then tempers rise. This is what happens. People get short-wicked. Emotions start to get blown out of proportion, and somebody says, I'm not talking about this. And they leave the room. And here's the problem. They never resolve the issue. Scriptures say, stick with it. Because it takes courage to stay at the peace table. And eventually, here's what happens. If you stay with it, you'll get through it. And here's what will happen. You'll run out of energy. You'll get past stage two in the conflict. We're all hurt feeling. Things have been said. And you run out of energy and finally say, okay, what are we going to do about this? And many people short-circuit this resolution process by not staying with it. But here's the bottom line. It is more rewarding to the resolve a relationship and a conflict than dissolve a relationship. It is more rewarding to resolve than to dissolve. And you'll do one or the other eventually. Resolving conflict is painful. You need to expect that. It's like walking through the national park sometimes. You get hooked up with bush lawyer, which is way worse than blackberry prickles. They hurt. It comes with the territory. Resolving conflict is painful, but the rewards are far greater than letting the relationship die. So my plea to you as your pastor, because I'm committed to building strong families in the church, is for you to make a commitment. We will do whatever it takes to make this thing work. Galatians 6, 9, last verse. Let us not grow weary of doing good of doing the right thing, good as defined by what God says is the right thing to do. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let's pray. Father, I know that this message has been challenging to many people here today. And I believe that you brought these people here and listening online because they need to hear the your word, your counsel. And the good news is, Lord, thank you that you've given us your counsel. And if we follow your counsel, you'll help us. Father, for those who haven't already become a believer, may today they open their life to your son, Jesus Christ. May they give him their past, their present, and their future, their hurts and their fears, their heartaches. Lord, the resentment that they've felt and their guilt, that they've also felt, all of that. I pray that, Lord, they would give that to you and commit their lives to your son Jesus and let him drain out of their lives the anger and the hurt and the insecurity in their lives. Perhaps some of you over the past few months or years have come to realize that my marriage or my family is not going to make it alone on human power. That you need supernatural changes in your heart or the hearts of your children or the heart of your mate to make things work. So open your life to Christ. Whether you're married or whether you're single, only God, friend, can meet your deepest need. Would you say yes to him? Would you say to Jesus Christ, I need to give you my life and my family. I sure need your help in my home. Because I know that I've sinned. And that's put a barrier between me and you. And me and others. 
Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to suffer the penalty of my sin and by dying in my place so that that barrier will be removed forever. I trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of my sins. And in doing that, I accept his free gift of eternal life, which is mine forever by your grace. Father, help us to be unselfish, not to think of just ourselves. Help me to think of my wife's needs. Help others here to think of their husband's needs. Help us to think of our children and put their needs in perspective. And Father, would you give me the power to do your will? This morning, Father, we want to thank you for your word as it applies to our lives so deeply. And I pray that your peace and your healing power might be on each of us as we open our lives to you. Restore harmony in our relationships, we pray. Build strong homes that we may have a strong church and a strong name of Jesus Christ residing in our hearts. Amen.